Well, thank you. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing that we're gathered together here this morning. You're such an encouragement to me just to see you and to have been here in the first service. And uh, thank you for, uh, for having me. Jason, thank you for those kind words and uh, for that beautiful edition of Bunyan. A bust of Bunyan sits uh, right behind me at my desk. Uh, now, it makes it all the more special. I did wonder how you were going to get out of the trap you had set for yourself, however. And in your very kind introduction, you pointed out the, the Time Magazine 40 under 40 list. And then sort of had it say, that was when he was younger. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's like saying this is his birthday. I won't say what it is, but you can tell it's a long way from 40. And, uh, <laughs> this is what happens to us all. And by the way, this is what happens to us all. Uh, when I was elected president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I was 33 years old, and uh, it was pretty unexpected. Um, all kinds of things going on in the theological world at the time. There's a reason why they needed me, and there's a reason why God had me 33, but it didn't make sense to much of anyone. And uh, so I had a, a very hostile news conference that night, uh, the night I was elected. I was elected, by the way, in Atlanta. The situation was so hot in the, the, the theological controversy of that time that they couldn't even have the meeting in Louisville. So I was elected at the Atlanta Airport Marriott. I fly over Ground Zero all the time. But the, the night I was elected as a press conference, and, uh, you know, reporters sometimes ask smart questions, they sometimes ask stupid questions, and they sometimes ask just kind of mid-range questions. This is, this is my favorite question I've ever been asked by a reporter. And it was asked in earnest seriousness. The reporter turned to me and said, you're 33 years old. What do you intend to do about it? <laughs> and, you know, the Lord gave me something to say. I just said, uh, I intend to age. And I just want to stand before you as a man who has kept his promise and uh, <laughs> commemorating that even as I'm with you. Please turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to be turning to one passage of Scripture, one chapter. And you say, well, which verse is in John chapter 9? The answer is John chapter 9. And uh, it's such an honor to be able to worship with Christ's people and to be able to turn in the Word of God together. And what I want you to think about as we read this text together is the fact that the Word of God is so powerful that in the truest sense, it preaches itself. So the preacher has a role. In fact, the purpose of my life in ministry is to pour into preachers who will preach. The preacher has a role, but the main job of the preacher is to expose the Word of God. That's what expository preaching means. You expose God's Word. And, and as we're thinking about that, you ask, well, how do you expose God's Word? The first thing you do is you make sure that it happens. You, you make sure that the Word of God happens. Now, in this particular passage which is a, a narrative from the Gospel of John. What's important is we also recognize there are different ways the Word of God happens. It's a, the Bible is God's Word written. And uh, we speak of its perfection, its inerrancy and infallibility, its uh, trustworthiness, its absolute truthfulness. 
And so if we're reading a passage like John chapter 9 and we read it alone, well, it's of enormous benefit to us. But there's something particularly powerful about hearing the Word of God together, and that, that's what happens in Christian worship. Now, the same thing can be understood in other contexts. So, for instance, uh, you can have a marvelous experience watching a great movie by yourself, but it's not the same experience than when you're watching it with others. There's, there's something that happens in the, the communal experience of something, and, and, and it, it does happen it does happen. Um, you laugh more when you laugh with others. You feel the suspense more when you feel it with others. You're moved by the, the drama more when it happens with others. And that's one of the reasons why we just so want to be together as God's people, to experience the Word of God together. So let's turn to John chapter 9. And just let the word of God preach itself. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the, mind who, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, 
he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Mercy. It's one of those passages that leads you at one moment to say, I wish I had been there, and another moment to say, thank the Lord I was not there. The, the intensity of this passage is just, you know, frankly, pretty overwhelming, which is why it's tempting to try to cut this into parts. But if you cut it into parts, you miss, the, you miss the entire drama of what's going on here. This is one of the most powerful disclosures of Christ. It's one of the most powerful disclosures of the gospel in the entire New Testament. And what you have here is an incredible display of, uh, for instance, biblical theology, as we're going to see, uh, in the oddest way. The Bible is, it, well, it demonstrates so many different forms of literature. You've got teaching passages, didactic passages, you have letters from apostles, you've got Old Testament prophets, you have poetry such as in the Psalms, and, and then you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And, and these are the, are the Holy Spirit-inspired, perfectly trustworthy accounts of who Jesus is and why he came, what he did for us. Gospel of Matthew helps to explain how the gospel, how the life of Christ fulfills the Old Testament completely, utterly. And that's why it says these things happen in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled, going back to the Old Testament. The gospel of Mark is the get right to the point gospel, and it moves fast. Indeed, 
That's why you find the word immediately, immediately, immediately is, 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 is in there because this happened and this happened and this happened. The, the Gospel of Luke is the longest. And by the time you put Luke as the first volume and Acts together, also written by Luke, you got about a third of the New Testament there by Luke. And Luke begins both of those great writings by telling us that his purpose is to give us a chronological and uh, a, a narrative account of who Jesus did in order that we can know how these things happened and what Jesus said. But then it's the Gospel of John, which stands apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the sense that it begins in the beginning. And in the beginning, it's like Genesis in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When people think of the Gospels, they think of the four books in the New Testament that tell us, okay, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. There's a lot more to all four of them than that, but the Gospel of John is also unique in that the Gospel of John helps us to understand the Gospel by means of irony. Irony is a unique reality. You know, it's, a, it, it's essential. There are, there are few works of literature that have no irony. It, irony is a part of what makes life meaningful because irony sneaks up on us. Irony, strictly defined, is probably best summarized as saying that it is, it is the insertion of the unexpected for the expected. There's, and, and, and sometimes it's this non-alignment that just gets our attention. Like, you know, famously, if there's a headline that says, you know, fire station catches fire. Okay, that's ironic, Right? Uh, you, you look at that and you go, okay, you know, that's just, just, it's almost perfect. You know, just, there it is. There's the way the world is. The fire station catches fire. Irony also works when you, you a character, for instance, in a movie or a play or a novel, a character shows up and you say, I know exactly what she's going to say, but she says the opposite of what she's going to say. You thought exactly who you knew did the crime, but it turns out someone else did the crime. You know exactly where someone's going to end up in the story. They end up in another place in the story. Irony is where all of a sudden things just go angular, and you look at it and you go, how did that happen? The passage we just looked at is probably the most ironic passage found anywhere in Scripture. Because by the time you end John chapter 9, everything's been turned upside down, and Jesus has actually told us everything's been turned upside down. I came in order that those who see would be blind, and those who are blind may see. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Now, notice how it begins. Jesus and the disciples on the Sabbath day are walking to the temple. And that would mean they were making the ascent, a physical ascent to the temple. And so they're walking up. And so every seventh day in which uh, people headed for the temple in Jerusalem, those who could be allowed in the temple in Jerusalem, a blind man would not have been allowed in the temple. Beggars would be lining the way because they had no way to secure any kind of funds other than to beg for those. And, and look, the Lord's day, in this case, the, the Sabbath day, um, that was the best day to get a chance because almsgiving being a uh, command in the Old Testament, then people headed for church just might be more inclined uh, to be a little bit generous. But people have passed by all these beggars, and, 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 and they're passing by. The disciples ask the question, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, what you see there, for one thing, is a conventional theology that Jesus rebukes. He, he does. He's they saw a theological question. Jesus saw a man. Very crucial distinction. 
But their theology was that uh, the conventional theology of the day is that someone's individual sin has to explain why this man would have been born blind. And so if you're dealing with a baby who's blind, the question is, whose sin was it? And, and it, the, the options are limited. It was either this man prenatally or his parents, okay? So someone's sin caused this. Now, by the way, was the blindness the result of sin? The answer is yes, but in the sense of Adam's sin that corrupts the entire creation. Not his parents' sin nor his sin. It's, a, it's an atrocity to say, why did this happen to someone? And it's because of their sin. You just, you just, at least you know that's the wrong question to ask. But if, in this situation, it's not just the wrong question to ask, it's the wrong time to ask the question. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, that neither one, by the way, he, he just, there is a rebuke in this. It's, it's not a mean-spirited rebuke. It's, it's, not, it's not sharp. But Jesus simply says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that also is just a fundamentally world-changing statement. So, why is anyone, as a human being, why is any human being born as we are born? The astounding statement here is that it is so the works of God may be revealed in her or in him. Doesn't that transform the way you think of just the glory of God's gift of human life in any circumstance, in any condition? Why, that a child born blind is so that the works of God may be displayed in him, in her. And in this case, the works of God were displayed in an act of healing, which is what Jesus is going to do. But Jesus, before even doing that, says something very important in verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, this is famously one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. In this case, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he also speaks of the, of the reality, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. It's a sign of the, the church. I mean, this is what we're doing. It's what you're doing right now. We're gathered together to work the works of him who sent us while it is day because night is coming when no one can work. There's not going to be an evangelism in the kingdom of Christ. It's too late. When the day of judgment comes at night, things are as they are. But in the meantime, we've got a lot of work to do. And here Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. While it's day, the church is to be working. So what we're doing. We're working the works of God. We're showing the works of God. We're preaching. We're sending. We're telling. We're taking. We're ministering. We're serving. Well, it is day. And, and but since why is it now day? It is because the light of the world has come. It's a day in a whole new sense. And if he's the light of the world, and he says, we must work the works of him and say, while it is day, what are you hearing? You're saying this is John chapter nine. Oh, well, wait just a minute. This is Genesis chapter one. Now, remember, we, we, we were already told this in the Gospel of John. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. So it turns out that not only is he the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, Lord, God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, he's the agent of creation. When God said, let there be light, it was through 
the Christ that the light came to be. He's now the light of the world, but he was the light of the world in Genesis 1. Now, think of that because we're going to be going back and forth. It's as if Genesis 1 is transported because of the disciples' question about this blind man right here into John chapter 9. But after speaking of working the works and the fact that night is coming when no one can work, having said these things, in verse 6, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. What are we made of? Dust. Mud. Who made us out of dust and mud? The Christ. The Christ who made every one of us out of the dust takes the dust and spits on it and anoints this man's eyes with mud. It's unexpected. It's unsophisticated. It's crude. It's us. Dust. From dust we came, and to dust we shall return. But this passage is so concise. Just look at it. It says here that he he took the, the ground the dust from the ground, and he spat on it and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. He sent him to sent. Like, that's an accident. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Those are are three phrases, and they're going to come up again and again in this passage and you're going to hear them in a different way, and you're going to say, that's what that is. He went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. The conciseness of that is something that no mere human author would be satisfied with. You'd have to say, it's like it should be trumpet sounding, there should be, you know, clouds parting, but it's just simple. He was told to go wash in the pool of Siloam, so he went, and he washed, And he came back seeing. That last phrase, it's like a bomb detonating. What do you mean? He went and he washed and he came back seeing. This is supposed to make sense? This this is supposed to be the end of a mathematical formula? No. He went and he washed. And he came back seeing. Things get strange. The neighbors... Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, now watch something. Please watch with me. Watch how John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses the word see in the word blind. Because if you watch carefully, there's some big surprise that's coming. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. That's all they can say about him. This is who he is. He's a guy who used to be blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, excuse me, let me me go back to verse 8. 
The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he, others said, no, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So this is just so bizarre. Now just watch, watch the word sight, watch the word seeing, watch the word blind. So these are neighbors who had seen him, but they had evidently never actually seen him because it turns out that even though they had seen him his entire life, they never saw him to the extent they're not sure it's him. Who exactly is blind in this passage? Not only, not only like just in terms of recognition are they not sure it's the man, theologically, they're kind of sure they don't want it to be the man. And so they say, it's the stupidest stuff. I mean, this crowd, it's, it's like the police showing up at the end of the crime and saying to someone, you know, get, tell us, what did the suspect look like? And it's, it's like, it's, this is completely useless. Some of them said, it's him. The others said, no, I think it looks like him. I mean, there are all kinds of people that look a lot, these formerly blind people. I mean, I, how can you tell them apart? Um, and then, and then as, if, as if no one thought to ask, the man says, I am he. It's me. Well, they don't, they don't like the answer. So they said to him in verse 10, then how were your eyes open? Explain this, explain this. People don't get their sight once they're born blind. We need an explanation. And he answers very straightforwardly. The man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, here's something. How does he know that this man was the man called Jesus? There's no introduction either way in the passage, but somehow he knows when he was blind that the man who anointed his eyes and sent him to Siloam and washed was this man called Jesus. And so when he's asked, how did this happen? He immediately says, it's a who. It's, it's this man, Jesus. And here's what he did. He, there's the spittle. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. And I, I went and I washed and I received my sight. Again, boom, boom, boom. That three-part answer. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. You know, it's an interrogation, and it just shows you, you know, that they're saying, well, if he did this, then he's going to answer for it. Where is he? And, and, and so it's just straightforward answer. And again, watch this, because it's, it's going to explode later. He says, I, I don't know. I don't know. He's not accountable for where Jesus is. Well, they're frustrated, so they bring in the, um, they bring in the feds. Local authorities can't crack this case, so we'll bring in the FBI, the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. What else are you going to call him? What, what do you call him, this guy? All, all, all you can say is, this is the second time he's just identified as the guy who used to be blind. It's like his business card, used to be blind, Clyde. I mean, that's the most important thing about him. Now it was the Sabbath day, and, and so we're told in the passage that that the Pharisees are offended because Jesus had performed this miracle sign, as John calls it, on the, the Sabbath day. And you know, remember that God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. We have a Sabbath command. And um, this had become so distorted by the time that the New Testament 
comes around. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, it had been so corrupted that, for instance, the Pharisees are just out to trap someone for doing some good thing on the Sabbath and thus being identified as breaking the Sabbath command. This shows up in the Gospel of, of Matthew where uh, the Pharisees try to set Jesus up in Cana of Galilee and in the synagogue, they present to Jesus on the, on the Sabbath day a man who had a withered hand. And they said, is it good? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, get out of my way, you idiots. And he heals the man's hand. And it was restored just like the other. And then, by the way, the Pharisees went out and plotted as to how they might kill him. Okay? But Jesus said, look, he didn't, he didn't say, oh, forget the Sabbath command. That's not what he said, because it's fulfilled in him, by the way, Hebrews 4 tells us. But he, he said, God made Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then he says, which one of you, if he has an animal like an ox that falls into a ditch on the Lord's day, on, on, on the Sabbath day, would not get that animal out? If it's lawful to do that for an animal, how much more for a human being, let's just say, made in the image of God? All right. The Pharisees show up, and, and so now they're going to interrogate the man, and they turned out to be a bunch of bungling fools in the interrogation as well. So the Pharisees ask him how he received his sight, verse 15, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. You know, is this, is this, is this too complicated for you experts? You know, get this down. He spit in the mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash. I went and washed, and now I see. I went, and I washed, and I came back seeing. Got it? Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, they're speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner that is breaking the commandment and in rebellion to God, how could he do such signs? There was a division among them. So they turn on the blind man, verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? You're gonna have to explain this. So what do you say about this man called Jesus? If he did this, then who is he? And the man says he is a prophet. Now, you look at that and you go, well, there are a lot of things we say about Jesus, but, you know, we would think, you know, the first things we would say is he's Lord and Savior and Christ. He is fully God and fully man, the second person of the Trinity, the very only begotten of the Father is the Son. But you notice he says prophet. Now, remember that Christ holds three offices, which he fulfills perfectly, prophet, priest, and king. But when he says prophet here, what he means is one sent from God. That's the essential meaning of prophet. So in other words, he's saying right in the face of the Pharisees, God sent him. God speaks through him. Where he speaks, God speaks, like Elijah, like Moses, like Isaiah. He's a prophet. Now, if he's a prophet, then the Pharisees have to listen to him. They hate this. But notice that this guy, who, by the way, was never allowed in the temple, was not allowed in the synagogue, this guy that everyone passed on their way to church, it turns out that he knows things that the people going to the temple all their lives don't know. No one's ever asked him a question before. He's got an answer when they ask when they ask him the first question, where is he? He says, I don't know. But he asks him, who is he? Well, I can figure that out because if he can do this, <laughs> he's a prophet. Okay, now the passage just gets stranger. 
in verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? That, 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 okay, just to set up there. So remember how the whole passage starts with the disciples asking Jesus, whose sin caused this, this man or his parents? These parents had been bearing their entire lives the scandalous question, what horrible sin did they commit that this man was born blind? And now the Pharisees are trying to deny that he actually had been blind so they can deny the miracle, but they had to concede it when they actually asked the question of the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? You know, we're on to you. He's been playing blind all this time. You've been bearing all this shame all this time just in order you can make us look like idiots. No, you're doing that very well on your own, thank you. And, but these parents are like the parents sent from central casting as horrible parents. They're so scared that they're not even going to acknowledge, except there's a very strange thing. If you watch the text carefully, there's a tell. <laughs> it's kind of like when you bring someone in for interrogation. You know, did you steal it? Did you, did you rob the bank and take the money? And you say, no, I didn't. I don't know anything about it, and you'll never find the money. Look at what they say. Look at the text really closely. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Oh! <laughs> Turns out you know more than you're letting on because no one asks you who. Your denying reveals your knowing. But then they say, ask him, he's of age. I throw their own son under the bus. He'll speak for himself. And then they come back to it. His parents said this stuff because they were afraid because they'd already known that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. Jesus has been identified by the man who had been blind as a prophet, but now we're told that the parents who actually do all of a sudden accidentally reveal, they know more than they knew because they go from the how to the who, and, and, and then we're told that their fear is that if anyone confessed that Jesus is the Christ, they should be put out of the synagogue. You see, all of a sudden, the dots are being connected. People, people are beginning to understand. Already the Pharisees are saying, if you confess that Jesus is Christ, which means Messiah, which means anointed one, which means the king who will rule on David's throne forever. Well, no one's actually said that yet in this passage, but it's everywhere already in this passage. So much so that that's why the parents are terrified. So all of a sudden, we, as it turns out, know more than we might have thought we knew in the beginning of this passage. It isn't done. The Keystone cops decide yet for a second time they're going to call the man and interrogate him. Verse 24, for, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind. And again, that's a that's the third time in the passage. The only way they can identify him is the man who used to be blind. They said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They're speaking to Jesus. And understand, this is a sign of theological weakness because they're, they're, they're going to try to deny that Jesus has come from God and they initiate it by saying, give glory to God. Well, that's a, that's again, it's a sign of 
weakness. They, they know they're out on a limb, but they're going to try to recoup the momentum. Now, their argument is that Jesus is not sent from God. But what they said is, we know that this man is a sinner. And notice verse 25. This is the man who had been blind. That's all we know to call him. Here's what he says. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Okay, now, in what sense does he see now? Oh, in more senses than we can count. Physical sight, yes, but beyond physical sight, he's all of a sudden seeing a great deal more. He doesn't stop. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now remember, they've been told repeatedly exactly what happened. Here's what he did. Here's where I was sent. Here's what I did. I went and I washed and I came back seeing. He answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then, and then do you see, all of a sudden, this guy, this guy who no one has noticed, no one has heard anything from for all these years, no one who was ever in the synagogue, no one who was ever in the temple, that no one knows why he is, who he is. They don't even know any way to identify him other than as the man who used to be blind. All of a sudden, he sees everything. And then he begins to turn the tables on them. The Pharisees are the ones who are supposed to be in control. The FBI is supposed to be in control of this interrogation. They've got a suspect they're interrogating, but now it's the suspect that's interrogating the interrogators. And there's what he says, and he knows exactly what he's saying. He's turning the knife. I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Fury. They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we're the disciples of Moses. We know that this man, uh, we, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Do you also want to become his disciple? No, you're his disciple. True or false? More true than false. More, for, more true than false. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. Notice the no, don't know. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know, he keeps, now he's preaching. We know that God does not, we know, again, notice the words, we know. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin? And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now, virtually every paragraph in this passage, John chapter 9, it's as if we look at it and we say, well, if it ended there, this would be more than a whole story. If it ended there, this would be more than, frankly, we can handle just to try to take it. There's more here for us to celebrate. There's more here that upsets the world. There's, there, we, we've had so many reversals. There's so much irony. There's so much direction. There's so much surprise. What can happen? Well, this guy's now preaching. 
And, and by the way, what he says is true. Never, never since the beginning of the world, again, Genesis, Genesis, never since Genesis has it been heard that a man who was born blind received his sight. What does that tell us? Again, this is to just learn to read the scripture. What this guy is saying is evidently Genesis is here. Because since the creation of the world, this has never happened. So it has to be, and again, he's not saying this explicitly, it has to be that the one who made us out of dust is, is the very one who took the dust and spit it and put it in my eyes. And the more you guys talk, the more I see Genesis is here. Let me throw them out. And notice again the reversal. They keep saying they see. He keeps saying, hey, you know, I do know what blindness is, and you guys don't see a thing. The more you talk, the more I realize you don't see anything, but the more you talk, the more I realize I kind of do. And what I see with my eyes is the least important of what I'm seeing right now. But then Jesus reappears. Genesis. The Logos appears. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus finds him. Notice he doesn't find Jesus. Jesus finds him. And then Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, earlier we had Jesus referred to as prophet by this man. And, and then we had the, the fear that there would be those who would confess that Jesus is the Christ. And, and then we have this man coming to understand more and more and more of who Jesus is. But then Jesus Ask him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And, and again, that's a messianic title from the Old Testament, particularly from Isaiah. And you look at this and you recognize he's saying, do you realize that all of God's promises are in the Son of Man? Do you believe in him? And then notice the beauty of every single syllable that follows. He answered, and who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. I'm going to believe in whoever you tell me to believe in because you gave me my sight. I know that God sent you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have life everlasting. He says, I know that God sent you. But what he says here is about the Son of Man, when he's asked, he says, just show me, tell me who he is, and I will believe. And then the climactic words of all. Verses 37 and 38, Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Follow the verb tense. You have seen him. When? When did this man become a believer? When? When he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Jesus says, you have seen him. And the one who is speaking to you is he. And the man responds, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. What does saving faith look like? 
I think many of us would think that it looks like adding up an equation, two plus two equals four. Here's all the evidence of who Christ is. That means we believe in him. The evidence is not unimportant. The entire New Testament presents that evidence. But there are people, including the demons in hell, who know the facts but don't know Christ. This man says, I believe, but he doesn't say, I believe, as in, I got it, I've added it up. He says, I believe, as if he is surrendering. I don't have any choice. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That's about as simple a picture of saving faith as I think I've found anywhere in Scripture. And I remember years ago hearing that uh, one clear indication of whether you're a Christian is how you answer the question, how did you come to be saved? Or what is your hope of salvation? Or similar question. And the tell is in your answer. Because I think there are a lot of evangelicals who would say the way to answer that question is to say, well, I have confessed Jesus Christ as Savior and repented of my sins. The problem is that when you ask the question, how is it that you've been saved? Our answer had better not start with the first person pronoun. It had better start with God who is rich in mercy. While I was yet a sinner, saved me. Well, how is it that we're saved? Why, why is it that you're saved? It's not because, first of all, of what I did. The only, all I did was surrender. <laughs> all I did was run out of any other explanation for how anything good has ever happened to me. All I did was read Genesis 1 and recognize if this is true, I belong to him and have no hope. I am nothing but dust. I just surrender to this. I, 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 do you believe in the Son of Man? And you'll notice that when he says, I believe, it's immediately followed with he worshiped him. In other words, it's not just a, it's not just a belief. It's not just a, a cognitive recognition. It is that, but it's more than that. It's the, Lord, I believe. All I want is to be yours forever. Lord, I believe all I want to do is just exult in you. It's, it's not over. Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. That's hard. I think it's probably harder than I can fully figure out hard. Probably harder than we can take hard. But those who claim to see, but see anything other than Christ, don't see. From Genesis on, they, they just don't see. And Jesus came into the world to convict those who do not see. 
But Jesus came into the world so that those who do not see may see. Why are we here this morning? It's not because we have any ability to see. It's because Jesus came and those who could not see do see. It's not over. They're back. Some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? If you have to ask the question, you are the answer. Are you talking about me? Notice Jesus' words. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. I don't know. I know this. Is this, is this a man who was really blind and now he sees? He went and he washed and he came back seeing. And what does he see by the end of this passage? Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. But this isn't, and they all lived happily ever after. Because Jesus not only came into the world so that those who do not see may see, but that those who see may be blind. You know who you are. You know what you see. In this passage is one of the sweetest, most concise, most powerful summaries of the gospel. What's the call? To see. To recognize that without Christ, you never saw. And that because of Christ, now you see. And what you see means that you believe and you worship. So what is the gospel? I went and I washed and I came back seeing. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for showing us the gospel that we might see that we might see Christ, that we might see salvation, that we might see your glory. Father, may we exult as believers, not in anything in us, but everything in you. And may there be others, even here today, who will be able to say with us, I went and I washed and I came back seeing. Amen. Amen.